Donal O'Corcoran remembered. How else could it be? For this small, wiry man was such that those who were lucky enough to meet him or to know him never felt or thought in quite the same way afterwards. He instilled them with new compositions of thinking and of feeling that opened to their intellectual faculties the windows of the world. He was, in a very true sense, an exemplification of Eliot's dictum that no poet, no artist of any art, can have his complete meaning alone. For if Thorno Corcoran completed his students, he too was completed by them, and is perhaps best seen in this light. How is he remembered? How was he first seen? Were first impressions lasting? Those who knew and loved him, they only can truly say. I well remember Don Lockerkeris first walking into the lecture room where I was a student at University College. One felt that here was a presence. Here was a man, quite clearly, at once serious and disarming, considerate and firm. But with every lecture, there grew a sense of his impressive presence. He filled us with thoughts, with probings, that made us prick the innermost ear, and always left us, no matter how dry the subject was, no matter how uh, close he stuck to a text, always left us with a telling phrase, an idea which quickened in our minds. This is my first memory of Don Locorcra. Then one day we had a new teacher at school. He was a small man with a limp. He had a little black moustache, a rosy complexion like a baby's, and a small, neat head with a long back to it. He had a harsh, staccato voice. Up to that, every teacher I had met was a tormentor of youth, so I wasn't really surprised when this one kept us in at three o'clock instead of letting us go home. He wrote something in a strange script on the blackboard. Then he began to tell us that bow was the Irish for cow. Now, we'd never heard of a cow being called anything else but a cow, and none of us had ever heard of Irish. I noticed that all during the lesson he never explained the words he'd written on the blackboard, so when the lesson was over, I went up to him and I asked him what they meant. He said they meant, Waken your courage, Ireland. And here, I was going to do a little bit of work, and I was going to do a little bit we tracht eigen klostehugum er er gorkroch römischen klostinge enemige beile ages marschende ages er homegen saulegdum grwar mur grie ach nur gnick gnick me an an farbacht sorgse marwasses farbog ischel bekach ischul stechen dorus a ruig skante liavan Agus er chomegen gan ein versendacht vore bündlech de vesses, kurug dima an daunerm. Ach kahamera nar lan an dima san avad, derer mara eis dieslech, agus derer mara oskelche meigenurm, e fuerisamacht derer ichele, nar wen ar vyog suoroch eisha. Gudain kahamera, gurvo a saulitra meigenurm anisha, na Na an tolte wie meigene nur de große stach äh sorangen an hier la agus na fil dimar hillerum scheta grant nische meigene na pictur fahig fach iring dietvara 
One came in from a school, very shy perhaps, and then at the very first English lecture, this little man with the lame step, the snow-white grey hair, limped in from the staff room across the floor and sat down and called the roll and looked around. And of course that was just the first of many things. And he got down immediately to fundamentals. He got down to what is literature, the difference between the language of literature, I say, and the language of science. We were really put up against it from the very word go. I first met Daniel Corkery in the summer of 1921, and the black and tan war was at its height at that time. I was walking out the road towards the Fox and Hounds, and I met him, and it was a walk he was very fond of. And he spoke to me and uh, said uh, that he believed I was interested in writing, which uh, I was, without knowing anything whatsoever about it. And he discussed one thing and another with me, and then he asked me, any time I was passing his house in Garnasil, to drop in and have a chat with him. That was the beginning. After that, for years, I used to call to see him twice, maybe three times a week, myself, and present also would be Sean O'Fallon, Frank O'Connor, Dennis Breen, and other fri friends of his. And we always had a good session there. I suppose as a sculptor, I saw him, but he had a very interesting head, uh, which he held um, slightly sideways, and uh, um, as if he were very intent listener at all times. I did a bust of him, which is at the Gibson Gallery in the School of Art in 1935, but there is a very interesting bust of him in the early years by his friend Joseph Higgins. My memory of Donald O'Corcoran goes back to the years 1907-1910, when as a boy I joined the South Parish Gaelic League. Donald was one of a group of trained teachers who belonged to the branch. Others, including Dennis Breen, R. Lenehan, Pat and Dan Harrington and Sean Conlon. They were learning Irish themselves and were teaching us as they learned. They were all splendid, enthusiastic teachers. When O'Corcoran wrote of people, he wrote more often than not of those quiet ones whose values and worlds are contemplative. He always sought to bridge the gap between life and art. The range of his sympathies was Catholic, and whether he wrote of the inward-looking Martin Cloyne in the threshold of quiet, or the redoubtable Maggie in the cobbler's den, his sympathy and his consideration for the human predicament are as deep as they are genuine. Benedict Kiley sees Corkery the novelist. As a firm believer in Thoreau's elusive moment, 
He wrote on the flyleaf of his one novel, The Threshold of Quiet, Thoreau's sombre maxim, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The lives of the thoughtful men and virginal women in that novel are all bound together in a net that can be as black as despair, and it shows how far away Corkery's mind is from the mood of such writers as Lever, Lover, Somerville and Ross, who saw, Corkery said, the common people of Ireland very simply as comic relief, and as if they were incapable of ever going beyond the teaching of mother wit. In those first elemental stories in A Monster Twilight, in the sombre pages of The Threshold of Quiet, in fact, in the people of all his stories, whether hard people from the mountains, or tattered people from the lanes, or young rebels, or chaste and clerkly men, or women like nuns, Corkery goes a long distance beyond the counsels of mother wit, beyond the remotest possibility of being confused with the authors of Handy Andy, or Charles O'Malley, or The Fortunes of Hector O'Halloran and his man Marcus O'Toole. He goes into places where the shadows of moral responsibility are as bewildering and terrifying as the mists on the Stony Mountains. The only previous Irish writer who bore a close resemblance to Corkery was Gerald Griffin. Indeed, the language of the novel is as sombrely nostalgic as its theme. The sky was ripening towards evening. It was warm and mellow. With soft gold, the sun touched the serried roofs of the city, the stone-white quayside walls, the sloping fields with softest gold, for they were far away. But up here on Fair Hill, the sun's rays, in spite of the trees, fell full and direct and sharp on the gable of the buff-coloured house, where against the wall, on an old wooden seat, open-jointed and weather-bleached, a young girl was sitting in the pleasant warmth, bending over her sewing. When the sun caught her hair directly, colour was lost. But what rich dark shadows elsewhere in the raven tresses? The crimson garment on which she was working threw up into her face a warm tint, disguising its natural hue. But about the ear, where that red light did not touch, how white and pearly the skin, the ear itself how delicate. Bright grass, homely flowers, flocks, marigolds, gladioli, trembling poplar leaves, dancing shadows, Lily Bresnan's nook on the hillside was an autumn lyric, mellow and glad, a sweet music that needed no heightening, no enriching, while that gentle girl, earnestly bent upon her task, lingered in the sun. She put the thread between her teeth and broke it. With a little clatter, the scissors fell to the dappled ground. There it remained. A robin quite suddenly winged across her and was lost in the sun-flushed foliage. Stitch stitch without hurry. The garment was held up and examined. She stooped and her fingers, but not her eyes, searched for the fallen scissors. Far away in the crowded valley, a convent bell was ringing for evening benediction. Then, again suddenly, the robin flung out a little phrase of melody. It ceased, but the far-off bell continued very sweet, very faint. The scissors once again fell to the ground. There it remained.
But O'Corcora, if he saw the desperation behind the smile, was quick in his own incisive way to grasp the humour of life, whether it was his first visit to silent films, which he quickly summed up for Sean Hendrick, or in a parody which he wrote for his friend Liam Rochelle. I remember one occasion he went. We were urging him to go and see this wonderful new medium, the films. There were silent films at that time. And we were telling him there was a certain film in town and he should go and see it. He had never been at the pictures. So he went. And we were very interested to know what was going to happen. So the next time we saw him, we asked him, well, what did you think of such and such a film? Well, he said, all I can say is that anybody that could enjoy that film, their mind must be a complete mush. <laughs> he was very nice, very nice in those early days when I was fairly intimate with him, you know, mm. and very helpful, do you see, to anyone. Now, uh, uh, as I said, in those early days of the Gillette League, when I went to his home, and he, he put me through my paces with such things as, um, in Irish, I roam me faster. And then the other ones were, I have more since him, um, Brian Bar McGee, and the heroine of Ross. And you know, he, 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 gave, he gave me a great training in how to say these things. Then he had a sense of humour. I remember we had, uh, once or twice a year, we might have a Cayley, an all night Cayley in the dune. And I remember he, he, he just for my sake, because I suppose I was a bit um, frolicsome, I was so young, you see, he, he just parried, uh, made a parody of some poem, which I, I can't think what it was, but he did something like this for me, which we used to quote. In Proshtahas there is a lass who looks and sighs for me. I gaze upon her brow and says, Ah, uh, even now I dies for thee, you know. <laughs> On the spot he did that kind of thing. And I remember another one, so this evening I thought of another thing which he uh, he told me learn by heart, which I used to do sometimes at these uh, functions. Uh, I, I saw this evening in Pelgrim's Golden Treasury. Uh, Shall I waste thee in despair? Die because a woman's fair, you know. Uh, these were the kind of things. He was very friendly and helpful to me, I must say, in those early days. To his students, he was a beloved, if distant, figure. Classes with Donlo Corcora were an open forum, where ideas and thoughts were freely exchanged, and where any comment, whether erudite or not so learned, was welcomed and embellished by this mind that had so much to give, and was so generous in its giving. Sean Thoma and Dan Donovan were two of those who were lucky enough to walk with him. I certainly think his greatest gift was as a, as a teacher of literature. Um, and the reason for this, I think, basically, was his ability to come on and show the hidden life in any poem or any drama he, he was examining at the time, whether it be a, a poem of Yeats or a sonnet of Shakespeare's or a drama of Sings. In reference to this, I might point out that some years ago, he wrote a beautiful critique in Fasta of a poem by Marda McEntee. In this, he mentioned the problem of a painter who, having finished his, his landscape, found that the picture just didn't come alive. Suddenly, however, it might occur to him 
that by inserting a red spot in a particular place in the picture, that all the surrounding colours suddenly blazed, became alive. Well, I think you might put it like this, that Corkery had an uncanny knack of isolating this red spot in any bit of literature he was illustrating. And thereby he was always able to give it life and to show what gave this particular poem or drama life. He was an adept at this. You'd take a long poem like, say, Spencer's Epithalamium, one of these things, and you might get the 50-odd divisions into which the thing fell, and then all of a sudden he'd stop. Something would strike him or would crop up, and he'd raise his head, uh, look sideways, uh, close his eyes, and literally mentally wrestle with some idea that he wanted to express. And he'd pound at it in that croaking, rather throaty voice of his, uh, until he had brought out something very clear and nearly always very profound. Uh, he was never satisfied just to make a superficial observation. And he was always searching for the, for the mot juste. Uh, and it didn't come easy to him. He was not a fluent man. In English or in Irish, he was not a fluent man. And I think he distrusted fluency. He distrusted people who found things easy to say. Any glibness, shall we say, I think he always would be suspicious of. And he had this perpetual search for the right phrase. For example, I remember one time uh, in, uh, he just read a little lyric for us. He was doing the English lyric at the time. Uh, um, one of uh, Herrick's, it was, the little, the little Grace, actually, before meals. And um, he read it through for us in that odd voice of his and remarked at the finish, not a syllable wrong, everything perfect. The whole little poem just hovers. But evidence of his gentleness and excellence as a guide and friend to youth are available from even those early days as a national teacher in St. Patrick's National School. Frank O'Connor and Seamus Murphy were two of his pupils there. When we were at lunch, he used to stand in the doorway, leaning one shoulder up against the jam, with one hand in his trousers pocket, and you could always go up and talk to him about your grandmother or the books you like to read. He listened to you with one eyebrow always raised high above the other so that the second eye seemed closed while the other eye focused on you as if you were a picture and he stroked his moustache over his lips as though it were a curtain. Once when I was with him in the street we ran into another small boy called Spillan and when Spillan had gone, Corkery said thoughtfully, he has the face of a thinker. That's the sort who think thoughts that shake the world. Oh, I remember him very well as a national teacher, and uh, I remember him especially because he, he uh, taught singing and he had a very good baritone voice. We did uh, uh, um, uh, mostly Irish songs, uh, and this was before, uh, this was before 1922. The <laughs> Agus 
Sjöst av hyggre skrifrullighet. Ni varför har skrivit några kattekar för det möjliga. Att några kladdelna och peggi. Och kan det vara väldigt lärv att arbeta i en kuppel kanske att en hittar ner den krimigas. Kanta är fyra som är galet där sig. A moment came when he had not the strength to say that Barry Keneally go with the rest. To retain it, he must take the hilly road to Kilcredden Church to enter it as a Protestant. The people had become accustomed to such strange and heartless doings, and therefore we are not surprised to find only one poet mentioned as having upbraided him for his weakness. Alison Thrua, Eviege, Don Firus Kiana, Ara, Deva Achene Yerig, Brenberg, Don Neafortarina Ras, Legerum, Reglum, Es Feilme or Nide, even today, when hopes the sufferer was granted his prayer. Non Tagachege, the Hahalboi Makilagona, Arese, Acharagon Fry, Lahondro, or Sulivine. He was to die equally poor equally desolate, unless, as legend has it, the Blessed Virgin, refuge of sinners, came and sat by him for comfort. Perhaps occasionally, critics have confused Don Lo Corcora with his time. Perhaps they have sought to separate the writer from the nationalist, the man from his ideals. But this would be to take from his work what Pori Column so aptly called the shock of recognition. These plays and stories of Daniel Corkery's produce in me the shock of recognition. I recognize our traditional life, the Gaelic life in them. But Gaelic life on what level? Because, of course, Gaelic life existed and exists on many levels. Again, to summarize, I should say that the life that comes over to us from these particular plays and stories is the life of a people who are ruled by a great imaginativeness. How can one fail to see the horror and the grandeur of this race, governed by this terrible imaginativeness of which Corkery believed the writer had to be an integral part before he could write about it, if one reads stories like Lyakunanev, where once these people have seen their dream, no power on earth can move their resolution? To enter that evil-looking green mountain glen, was like entering the jaws of some slimy, cold-blooded animal. You felt yourself leaving the sun. You shrunk together. You hunched yourself as if to bear an ugly pressure. And the far back part of it was what is called in the Irish language a lacquer, a slope of land, a lift of land, a bracket of land jutting out from the side of a mountain. This lacquer, which the daughter explained was called lacquer nanayev, the lacquer of the saints, was very remarkable. It shone like a gem. It held the sunshine as a field holds its crop of golden wheat. On three sides it was pedestaled by the sheerest rock. On the fourth side it curved up to join the parent mountain flank. Huge and high it was. Yet height and size took some time to estimate, for there were mountains all around it. When you had been looking at it for some time, you said aloud, That lacquer is high. When you had stared for a longer time, you said, that lacquer is immensely high and huge. Still, the most remarkable thing about it was the way it held the sunshine. When all the valley had gone into the gloom of twilight, and this happened in the early afternoon, the lacquer was still at midday. 
When the valley was dark with night and the lamps had been long alight in the farmhouse, the lacquer had still the red gleam of sunset on it. It hung above the misty valley like a velarium, as they used to call the awning cloth, which hung above the emperor's seat in the amphitheatre. The symbol and the imagination are there first in embryo and then in development, and O'Corkle was quick to see the importance of the symbol and the necessity of raising standards, both literary and national, again in the words of Porrick Cullum. In The Hidden Ireland and The Sing Book, Daniel Corkery maintains that Irish writers, if they are to be of any account, must be familiar with the Irish tradition, be at one with a traditional sense of life, whether that be tragic or uproarious. I am aware that some of our writers today will receive that statement in a very contentious spirit. They will say, so-and-so, because what he says come homes to me, an Irishman, is an Irish poet, even though he happens to be an Englishman, a Frenchman, or a Spaniard. The only thing worth considering is whether he is a real poet or an imitation poet. And what he carries along with him of scene or tradition matters very little. And the one who said this would be right in rejecting an Irish patron, if it was only a patron. But what Daniel Corkery urges is something that is beyond and below an external patron, something that is really difficult to achieve. It is to shovel away layer after layer of 19th and 18th century ways of thinking so as to come to something basic in ourselves, something that, because it is basic, corresponds to a way of knowing, feeling, projecting, that is shown over and over again in our traditional literature. Daniel Corkery would not make things easy for our writers by showing them some external pattern. He would make things hard. He would impose an extra discipline. O'Corkera was, in a time of turgid disillusion, perhaps Ireland's saviour when he wrote The Hidden Ireland. For here was a man who was an ecumenist before his time, a writer who welcomed the fresh winds of change. Writing of the 18th century Grail, he pointed out, Academic then in his build of mind, how out of joint the whole world must have appeared to the girl of the 18th century. Where or how was there any prospect of relief, of order, of life, of achievement, of ideals? He was in a pit of sorrow and the gates were closed. Yet it is under such circumstances that the academic spirit repays all the self-discipline that induces it in a man or a nation it can be trusted utterly to thresh the corn that has been laid up against the lean years. More than any other spirit, it can fashion and refashion and refashion again the same material. Itself, almost, it can use up and deck out as a vision of life. But if, on the one hand, self-discipline has endowed the academic spirit with such faculties, it has, on the other, left it barren of certain gifts that we find freely in the possession of less exalted types of mind. For instance, it is not daring. When it has threshed the harvest within the gates, it waits and waits for these self-same gates to swing open again, incapable of seeing that anything else can be done. Yet other harvests have ripened without, and there are ways of getting to them. 
if only one be adventurous enough, if not even rebellious. Agus sin mar a hache na chuid scríon oirechta ille, far tróraithe bahé, far gréve huile díreithe raig, agus scríon oire bahé a hig oigin a scríon oirechta, dhéanna gur aodar sásta gard a gaulamhuig, fe mar dér sianna tóma. Is éim a hóirim féin gur chuaise a bhaim níos mó, ar lucht litríochta agus lucht smuintóirechta in éiring, ná éan ar ille in éiring lena líng. Er gedal sís de wunsche kärna skrinorchte de vorandine heinigene jeg get fara aber de dene kasule joyce grwunsche technik no skrinorchte de skrinorine herenbeder ages geheirhe de skrinori harlar ach in an korkroch rodnis bonusi de wunsche an skrinorcht fein det fara de vorandine nering nafach chans er 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 en er en volum sinne hoort lo morg e de wiana hiemige gebonusig se jaarskel stolum ages e schen garskel marschri schrich norusige es mo hennlisch ages diering e grebeschud is kochti ele enering tischkentering jaarskel marwische aschri harlar le kögeblien römischen marzoldwing vi och han har också fått en in en neskebulige och om allsen vi morande in elle och nu ska de arla fin är nu Brian McMahon och Michael McLaverty och anskrinor gällinge donnach och kelleger istolum gräv donnach och vägar fadda istolig gör Donald och Karkra skolskrinorigt är skolig gulle nu är vi så strakaste gumma Agus hainig rhaint the winter na hoite er a skulchen agus an isn son go vadas as oldum a olemig donacha agus igrifor conus garskel iskri agus canadale in eating a yetachtine folum conus garskel iskri well shin mar khoshe evaimerwine de wunschen garskel agus hispanche go kadbelitrichtown en eger acho malishin yinche play lishonritz und smuinte difrula de gach sais Smointe a winlish and nashuntucht, a winlish and litriach de Göttinge, lish and dramuicht, le kultur. Navel ainge nering, le lechiad blien a nos. Narcha, play a viognu a vor, lish na smointe a le an korkruch. Agus gwaish a vaimer, er smointori de gohean hinal, smointori narskrinori a nechriad. Diet fara, ainge necher, a via machnav er chas na heren, le lechiad blien a nos, chashe play le smointe an korkruch. Perhaps the short story was his best medium, and perhaps too his influence will be clearly seen if we consider the beginning of the return and the closing paragraph of the saint, for they contain the true short story ring and also show the writer completely at home among his people. Where Ankle Lane joins Blarney Street, there are four high houses, dark-looking and very old, of that sort lane-dwellers call fabrics or castles, the number of inhabitants varies from day to day. A tricky man in for the races will stay two nights, cattle drovers only one. In periods of idleness, a group of coal porters sometimes attains a certain solidarity. The same figures go in and out the doors day after day. But just as happens in a factory, change sets in with prosperity, new faces come and go. And the next period of idleness sees a new colony, 
the same in its general characteristics, though made up of quite different individuals, repeat the fortunes of the last. They found the saint sitting on the floor, an unfinished bowl of bread and milk between his legs. Opposite his now cold eyes was his Renaissance Madonna. It stood propped against the edge of the bed. Guarding it on the right was Saint Anthony, on the left the chinaware angel, its font full of holy water. The candle that had lighted his treasures for him had burned out. Mrs. Phelan says when first she entered the room there was the smell of lovely flowers. Mrs. Mehagan says she heard far away singing in the dead of night. In any case it is pleasant to think how sweet the old man's thoughts must have been as his eyes began to close forever. Not far away music, nor newly gathered flowers, would be sweeter. But whether one strays with one's friends to the writer's home in Barrack Street, to the ovens, or down the silent afternoon keys to meet the characters he knew, or sits in the peace by the loch, one always comes back to the terrifying, uncompromising nationalism of the man. Benedict Kiley sees it clearly in his writings. When, under the impulse of a national movement, Corkery turned from the writing of a novel like The Threshold of Quiet to writing in The Hounds of Banba, a book of stories about armed revolution. He showed how completely the contemplative could think with the uncontemplative people he was writing about. Yet inevitably the men with the guns who moved through those stories borrowed something from the contemplative turn of mind of the storyteller. Like a singing procession of fighting men, silent for a few moments, as they march in the shadow of a convent wall or pass the open door of a church. Corkery put the matter well himself when he inscribed the hounds of Banba to the young men of Ireland and wrote this verse in dedication. You strike in here, chant your wild songs and go. The chroniclers with rushlights stumble after. And oh, to see them blot the sunrise glow of your bright deeds and dreams, your tears and laughter. O'Corker's nationalism was even more basic than this, for he went to the heart of Irish Ireland, the cradle and the basis of our civilization and our whole way of life, for he loved, more than any other thing, the Irish language. Every time you went, Donald was sure to produce something, produce a bone to be gnawed by all the rest of us. And the arguments used to wax backwards and forwards and he'd just drop in the little, uh, what should one call it, uh, the little drop of, oh, spirit, if you like, into it. But always, no matter where the conversation started, whether it was on literature, French literature, Russian literature, what have you, sooner or later, I always came back to the same thing, Ireland always back to Ireland. And as soon as you got on to Ireland, it moved from there straight away to the one question which occupied him more than any other during his whole life, and that was the question of the language. Shin Marduot, Sean Hendrick. Agus kumale kaint bian korkruk sasta vegnifruk. Fe marder Sean Otoma, agus fe marishkriv donno korkra sin liawr the fortunes of the Irish language. The V and the Wintige, Lesha Girkel Stadir, a Gurkig. 
Rohan Hogig, Nivia Hirahomus, Dolawale, Gudino Huana, and Archor Honashe. Agus is Miniganache, Sahar Ihede Hine. Agus, Beju the Voldoinge, and Kirkels de Dersha, a Hirashul Sahar. Agus Hagarche, Anna Vinnick, Augusta Hirschens on Insnabinchi Fora, a don't on the Codelli Ying. Agus Deschelish and Lecht, Agus Vir Partigas de Sport. Agus is come a can lecht of Hirschul no candy sport. Ver Agoni, Pointe, Fuemen Tool, Substein Tool of Ain Ledian Vigagar Ihe. Mar, Honafiri Ancient, Nihavangurv, Ar Litrirte, Achtabana Starie Homa. Agus Nalerti, Vir Schulring, Winner der Gnau Lester. Agus is Bjog Ihe, Nar Hilsche, Pointe Egen, Don Sterdwing. If at present the world knows of an Irish Republic, it is due primarily to those young men and women who sat week after week in those years in ill-lit halls or sheds with an O'Growney in their hands. Yet to look upon such classes, that reflection is the very last that would then cross one's mind, though it is a fact that Pierce, in some years after 1906, perhaps seven or eight, used these words. A new junction has been made with the past. Into the movement that has never wholly died since 67 have come the young men of the Gaelic League. I have said again and again that when the Gaelic League was founded in 1893, the Irish Revolution began. This love of Ireland, its language and his fellow countrymen, is easily found in his poetry, in the collection High Brazil, and in the now little seen collection Rebel Songs, which he dedicated to Erskine Childers, wherein occur the stirring prophetic lines. For soon the winds will shift and roar, and tones sweep thundering up the bay, and Ross and his men from the hillsides pour, and freedom's trumpet close the day. Rebord Bernach is one who had long known and admired O'Corcora. He had no great opinion of his poems, but at least one of these illustrates a theme which was a great preoccupation of his throughout his life. The theme of the relationship between art and life. Quite early in the 20s, a play of his called Israel's Incense was produced at the Opera House. And later on, uh, he took up the same theme in the 50s. And about a decade ago, his play, Phone of the Sculptor, which was really a retreatment of his Israel's Incense, was produced at the Abbey. To illustrate the interest, the continuing interest he had in this theme, uh, I'm going to read one of the poems, uh, a sonnet called Art and Life. Swinging the heavy grain, a brute of toil, rough-built of bone and muscle, as of spar and rope, pedestaled on his high-swinging car, stretches for breath. Above the dust and moil, sunstruck, a statue stands, and that bright spoil we have we had of Greece in stone, of Greece so far, so white in sun shines out to rout and mar with pride of life, life in its dust and soil, to mar, or crown with light, ah, poor indeed were life, unvisioned in the fire of art, where art, if the white death were never freed, from sculptured stone in man's impassioned heart, where life not Greece, were not Praxiteles the stir of shipping by the Athenian keys. Looking at O'Corcoran from the outside, one may be tempted to label too quickly. 
He may seem autocratic in his absolute single-mindedness, but on a closer look, this seeming autocracy can be seen for what it is. A man, alone for many reasons, were to tear up his infirmity by the roots and carve from this frail vessel an enduring flower of nationalism. To an outsider, an enigma, perhaps, but to his friends, he is never so, especially to Frank O'Connor. He lived with his mother and sister in a little house on Gardner's Hill. Over the mantelpiece, there was a big picture of Fair Hill, which used to hang in the schoolroom. Corkery sat in a fine Morris chair, which was both chair and desk, and which he'd made for himself. He was an excellent craftsman. The house was a paradise of books, and I never left it without an armful, carefully chosen for me by Corkery. There was no nonsense at all about reading what you liked. When Sean O'Felloyne and I wanted to make fun of him, we asked one another intensely, but is it literature? It was the same thing when he got the gramophone. Now it was Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, as it had always been Nice, Heine or Turgenev. Seamus Murphy had many and practical reasons for liking O'Corcora. I liked him as a man and as a human being and uh, for his great integrity, uh, that he never let go. I mean, he had his standards and he held to them and uh, he... Uh, uh, argued well, and uh, he seldom lost his temper, and could be very difficult, but he, he uh, could be very charming too, and he had a tremendous sense of humour. But he had a, good, a lot of stories about uh, uh, the building trade, because as, uh, he came out of, uh, of uh, he was actually six generations of carpenters in Cork City, and his nephew um, is at the present moment, uh, carrying on the tradition, he's foreman carpenters for a building firm here. O'Corcoran's humility and his love for his old school are exemplified in this sidelight provided by Liam Rochelle. I came across something yesterday which he, um, uh, he wrote about um, his old school, you know, yeah. South Monastery in Douglas Street. He, we had, I, I got together there about ten years ago, a group of these old pupils, because sometimes we call it a forgotten school, you know. He wrote something like this. This is exactly what he wrote, rather. The South Monastery of 70 years ago and more uh, wasn't too bad at all. It was modest anyway. It didn't beat the big drum. It didn't advertise. Even the young genius, it turned out, never saw his name, not to say his photograph, in the daily paper. The South Man of today does not seem to have lost anything of that sensitive humility. Sean Hendrick remembers musical evenings at the O'Corcoran home. He had a big gramophone and a wonderful selection of records. And he'd pick out a symphony for us. And we'd, he'd put it on, we'd all sit back, we'd listen. And almost always he had something of significance to say about it. And you remembered that. And the next time you heard the symphony, you listened for that again. But he did that with everything that he discussed, every question. There was always something. For instance, now I'll give you an example of what he was, the sort of thing he used to do. He was with a friend of mine on, on one occasion. They were looking at some pictures, and there was a painting. There was a painting of Don Quixote, 
and Cockery looked at it and he said, you know, that picture is all wrong. My friend could see nothing wrong with the picture. It seemed to be a very fine painting, so he said, why? And Cockery said, that man's eyes are looking outward. Don Quixote never looked outward. He was always looking inward. Looking inward, even in his moments of relaxation among his friends, the writer never ceased in his search for truth, and indeed when a time came to speak his mind, he was not slow to do so. I wouldn't describe him as a leader of men at all. He hadn't, he hadn't uh, that flamboyance which is necessary to a, to a leader of men. If you like, he hadn't got the, the James Larkin thing at all. And I could never, I could never visualise him as a leader of men. What I could visualise him as is, is a, a powerful influence with thoughtful men, but not as a leader of men. I don't think he could never lead a movement. And as I have mentioned Larkin, it's interesting to recall that when Larkin was prosecuted by, on the instigation more or less of the employers for. Uh, mishandling union funds or something like that. Some phony charges brought up against Larkin. This was before 1921. Corkery, I think, was the only, what you might call, intellectual, or certainly the only writer that I know of who wrote to the local paper protesting against the charge and the evidence and the whole case. The Doon was a name of magic in the early years of the century in Cork City, for here was born the Cork Dramatic Society, from whose beginnings a new movement was to spring up in the theatre in Cork. For the society was governed by one governing principle, the Onolo Corcoran's principle, that only such plays should be presented as were written specially for the society. The Doon was a glowing crucible of art in which playwrights such as O'Corcoran, Lennox Robinson, T.C. Murray, Con O'Leary and Trelloch Maxine met players like Dan Harrington, Eugene O'Shea, Ernest O'Shea and John Gilly, and presented to an enthusiastic public plays filled with the reawakened magic of a nascent literary revival. Michal O'Hay, director of productions Radio Aden, speaks of Don Corcora as playwright. Apart from his work as a producer, Cockery wrote four plays for Undoon, Hermit and King, Embers, The Epilogue and The Onus of Ownership. But none of these plays produced at Undoon could measure up to the high ideals of Terence McSweeney. In his diary, he complains that they had not one play to fill a whole night. We must, he said, make work to put beside Hamlet and Lear. In 1912, the Cork Dramatic Society took the Opera House for a week and staged another new play by Corkery, Israel's Innocence. McSweeney reported in his diary that this play by Corkery got no show whatsoever, that it was over the heads of the audience. The press damned it outright, he said. We felt sad over this, because any rubbish that comes along gets a conventional puff. Cork saw no more first productions of any of Corkery's plays in English. In 1919, the Labour leader was produced at the Abbey. This quiet and restrained piece was the first full-length play to deal with the social problems posed by the great lockout strike of 1913. The principal character, the secretary of the Key Men's Union, suggests that it was a study of Jim Larkin in his heyday. 
1920, again at the Abbey, Cochrane once more pointed the way with a short play, The Yellow Bittern, dealing with Cahalbui Mokilagona, one of the poets of the Hidden Island. Nineteen years later, another one actor, Phonam the Sculptor, was staged at the Abbey. But by this time, Corkery seems to have lost confidence in the Irish theatre. In his later years, he rejected the idea of an Irish drama in English. His last creative work was on Dorostonta, published in 1953. This was his first play in Irish, although several of his one actors had, of course, been translated by Sean Tobin and others. In his work of criticism, Singh and the Anglo-Irish literature, Cochrane was not prepared to give much more than the benefit of the doubt to his first discovery, T.C. Murray, as an interpreter of life in rural Ireland. But in a radio tribute on the occasion of Murray's 80th birthday, Cochrane praised Murray for his sense of literature and his power to move an Irish audience. The audience, he said, sit in an appalled silence, still almost rigid. They are looking not at themselves, but into themselves. Indeed, it would seem that if Cochrane had any need to justify his work in the theatre, he did so by his guidance and encouragement of Murray. Just as in the novel and short story, Cochrane was a potent influence in the theatre, an artist who could stimulate and inspire. Norris Moinintuaran Gorkroch, Nimoldet Blas Ildahak Nugelene, the Kursanoidov, Agaskahoide, Ayrocht Heverne Tangen, Maris Leer on a Kuchkin Orochta, to say tradition is to say language, and while this is true of every national tradition, it is overwhelmingly true of ours, so that it isn't wise for anyone to attempt to write our history unless he adequately equip himself with a knowledge of the language. It is the sine qua non, for even the story of the land, of the dominating place held by that foundational factor in our political and cultural life, cannot be given justly, except by those in whose mind it is closely wedded with the literary tradition. Soil, literature, where else, in Europe anyway, do these words go almost inseparably hand in hand as they do in our tradition right down the centuries? Fairban Kurkruch, nor Vedre, a hinch canegraum. Fergan gohi, a gail of plan runoch. Fergan irinarje, nor beba hanokal jagoni, nor easily the shown agasardoi die. Fair dearkoch, dechrich, red die agastine, boyachta genere. Is Pugdine, Gravain, Wintigale, have you opened the Gailinge, Ganahinige, Eranolov? Fishke, the Hegoni, in a hacker, a glock stew and a hebrishin. We can a live a Christi fishy, er food no mooner. Agas need ye wean if you share our dine, the Vishenwood, a Molonagamortashi, Agas a lower Klishnadine, a minu, Tach, the Gailinge, the Nashun, Doiv. Lechtor, Puokloch. Tainyvachabay. 
Heolus, if ye weenig, er fagna yet a blean, er starna heren, is the war, seher nevili, if ye and tolus on a co. Be seher nevili, the wooning trehen ail, savuin, agas the chimad strun a gold of the onorosavi. Mother le have yoken her veiling ye, we and tolover ain agony lishanaher padder, nor a duerche. Taga herada yanov, kuna veiling ye the chimad bio. Achan an all at the Kimadinti. Munalor for e, Nikimat for an anallinti. Agas Munigimat for an anallinti, Nikimat for Bioi, Nina Huma. Donal O'Corkera had the highest literary standards and imposed them constantly on his students and proteges. His is a name that will be remembered when many others whose stars may have glittered with a transient brightness will have passed from the scene. His character and greatness are transmitted by his friends and his work. Maybe it will be as Frank O'Connor said. My mind goes back to my youth, and I see a small figure limp up to the blackboard and write, Musgil the Vishnach of Anagar, wait in your courage, Ireland. I fancy more to encourage himself than the class, and I wonder what exactly the critics would have said if they had seen that in those days. I have a nasty little suspicion that they'd have said that really, you know, Corkery had always been a bit of a hothead, a fanatic. But personally, they didn't mind a little bit of Irish themselves, but uh, writing things like, wake on your courage, Ireland, on the blackboard, now that really was going a bit too far. The heresy of today is the orthodoxy of tomorrow. And today's orthodoxy, we mustn't forget, was yesterday's heresy. There's plenty of passion and rebellion in Corkery's work. In the later symbolic stories, it's all translated in the tales of horses. But it's explicit in an early book like The Threshold of Quiet. That's a divided book. Half of it is in the cloister and half of it on the sea. It's a real picture of Cork and I think a real picture of Corkery himself. You can see that, for instance, in a poem, like the poem on the drowning of a young Cork sailor, and again in another poem on a seagull seen from a slum school. What brought you to me in this vile slum, seagull, oh seagull, oh rapturous wing? It's in a story like The Return, with the contrast Corkery makes between the sailor man who has committed murder and Johnny would have been a sailor man himself, only for the wetness of the sea and his love for his mother. Above all, it's in the character of the boy in the threshold of quiet, the boy who wavers between the church and the sea, a saint one day, a pirate the next, the most successful bit of portrait painting that Corkery ever did. I feel you don't get much idea of the sort of man he was, of the sort of shock he produced, on the Society of Cork 30 years ago, unless you remember in reading him this boyish quality, this romantic rebellion, like the rebellion you feel in Mallarmé, another quiet man. Mais, oh mon coeur, entend le chant des matelots, or in Longfellow's lines, which Corkery used to love. I remember the black wharves on the slips and the sea tide tossing free and Spanish sailors with bearded lips, and the beauty and mystery of the ships. 
and the magic of a sea. Some years ago, Don Law Corcoran recorded for Radio Aidan some reminiscences of his great friend Trelok Maxine, an extract from which will serve to recapture a little of the atmosphere and the times in which they lived. I had, for five or six years, been teaching a slum school. The building itself had been set down in a half-hearted clearance of a network of lanes and passages. The backs of four-storied, half-ancient, overcrowded houses looked down on our playground on two sides and the confused crush of sheds and stables in one of which the Quaker community kept its house, hemmed us in on the other. Now it happened that the warehouse in which Terence McSweeney was bookkeeper was only a short distance from us, though not in a slum. In a minute or two, by surreptitiously using a wicket in the huge black gate that hid the Quaker's hearse, he would be in the midst of us. Except the driver of the hearse, I cannot recall anyone else using that same wicket. Gael agus ide, tan corcroch i mehoen anish, agus niek for a lehead erist. Eachina, agus efe ichlar, a fechint, a sochna swalkech, niething an kreenov, and widen down a conic me a couple of blena hen. Again, Ryle, there's some communal nefag lock again. dearer, maraig feather no vacho, a victor kyle verregen than saper dernach. A hawain, lishna, no sastachta, there's no holichta, a vermochta, an ish, again mass. Gandaradia, a shareig lorvada. When the words have been spoken and the tales have been told, Donal O'Corkera will have an enduring place in the island and the cork that he loved. Life and progress will march in the way that he so much craved. The Lee, that river that means so much to Cork and its people, will bear with it on its swift-flowing currents and on its gentle eddies memories of one who loved it well. His little poem, To the Lee, is the Trinity with which we can remember his departure from us and the great loss we feel. The last two stanzas read like this. Yet whisper, gentle river, tis I that may not stay. You in old cock will linger when I am gone away. So that you dance as brightly and sing a song as gay, Christ's blessing be upon you when I am gone away.